Welcome to the Inspiring Sustainability podcast and live video. Today I'm here with Greg Lavery from Ripe Office. And I'm really happy to be doing this because um, I've known Greg for well over a year now and seen just how he has been growing in his business and how that is truly inspiring sustainability. So, and that's what this podcast is all about, which is about how people who are really um, changing the game in business and also society can actually uh, deliver some inspiration for you guys out there. Who am I? Um, my name's Adam Woodall. I'm the uh, founder of Inspiring Sustainability, the business and podcast. And I'm really curious about covering all those people who are doing this, that telling those inspiring stories themselves, and then also helping tell those stories through my writing, and then working with startups, uh, such as Greg, actually I've been uh, privileged to work with him, and others on how they're scaling their business, how they can take their potential and turn it into exponential reality. Um, so that's uh, a bit about me, a bit about this interview, just for, for those that are curious about what's coming up, is that we're going to be talking to Greg about uh, himself, what's inspired his journey uh, along this, um, how he's been growing, um, what uh, he's learned along that, that journey, and also maybe about kind of remanufacturing more generally, because that's what he's particularly passionate about and the stem for this, and his, his plans for the future. So, uh, welcome to the show, and Greg, tell me a little bit about yourself, and uh, maybe a little bit about anything that you do out when you're not uh, working hard at right. Well, yeah, I mean, so, startups are pretty much a full-time job, so um, and and into the evenings as well. I, I try and keep fit. I think it's great for sort of managing stress a little bit. So I, I do a bit of swimming, a bit of cycling, a bit of running, uh, and I play field hockey as well. But. I'm not a particularly interesting person, so my outside of work life is not, not particularly interesting, I think. Well, I, I think the thing is you're focusing a lot of yourself on the, uh, the work, so that's what, that you're definitely interesting, I think, I wouldn't be putting you here, Greg, if I didn't think you were, you were yeah. an, it weren't an interesting character, so tell me about the business, which is obviously the big interest in your life at the moment. Yeah, so, so we've, um, we've recognised that remanufacturing is a massive opportunity out there, and that's... And this is, having set up a solar business back in the sort of early 2000s, that now, so we, I took it to market share uh, leadership, um, that's now worth over a billion dollars in Australia. That was a big wave a decade ago. And we heard yesterday Chris Hume talking about the opportunities uh, for, for solar and how that's mainstream. Um, there are other, uh, there's a light bulb revolution going on right now. Um, that, that wave has sort of broken. The next big thing um, we feel in, in our team is uh, around the circular economy. Mm. Uh, and the big opportunity that we saw when we looked at all the different opportunities out there across industry sectors is around office furniture. Mm. Price point's right, the remanufacturing's fairly straightforward compared to something incredibly complex like a computer or a wind turbine or something that has all the bits and bobs. Mm. Um, and what we recognised as well is that a coincident trend of offices wanting to pay less for their furniture but at the same time have a better quality product that's more uh, user-friendly, crosses over into breakout spaces, agile working. Uh, and as well, organisations are really interested in staff wellness and sustainability. Mm. So we can help with all of those. So it's a sort of triple win proposition. And mm. So when you've got this big wave of the circular economy catching it attention, and at the same time you can offer something that's cheaper, uh, that's better for the environment and frankly creates local jobs mm. There's a bit, and, and you've got the social benefits for staff of better wellness, better ergonomics, better sustainability. It, it, it's a great value proposition. So we think this is the real wave of the future. 
Yeah, I mean, that's you've summarised very well what the, the value in this is, so I'm looking forward to digging into that. Taking a few steps back, um, what uh, tell us a little bit about your career leading up to uh, yeah, launching. My, right. my, my epiphany moment came back in, when was it, early, early 90s, when I was designing a power station for the Philippines. And this power station, imagine if you like, the back of the Philippines, no power whatsoever, right? Mm. So can't build an industrial base without electricity. You can't set up manufacturing in any form. You can't even build a service economy. Um, so I was tasked, I was actually working on the 44th floor of a skyscraper in Hong Kong, designing a power station for a place called Pagbalao Grand Island. You can imagine the back of the Philippines, an idyllic rainforest island, uh, a, a small village on that, coral reefs all around, absolutely beautiful sandy beaches. You can imagine, I mean, it's just heaven on earth. Um, to put a power station there, what really... So I was designing part of that power station. And what, what really started my sustainability journey was the, over the, the course of the nine months I was designing that power station, the local village was pushed off the island at gunpoint, the rainforest was raised, the coral reef was blown up for shipping access, um, and, and my, one of my jobs was to design... Um, so I'm a civil engineer by original training was designed the basins where they take all of the scrub sulfur and all the nasty, um, uh, basically, airborne pollutants mm. out of the, the flues before they go to atmosphere, so at least it has scrubbers on it. And I designed the, the ponds that actually let that settle, because that's done with water. It's a pretty mm. messy process. It goes out into this pond and it settles. And I said to the client, how many years do you want me to design this for? So how much, essentially, gunk do you want to put in this big concrete pond that I'm designing for you? Um, and I said, it's a 50-year design life power station. Often they extend out to 100 years. What do you think? Uh, and the client said, seven years. And I said, well, hang on. What happens after that, after the seven years? And you've got this whole pool of gunk um, that's like literally cake of sulfur dioxide and all mm. these other nasty sort of sulfurs, nit nitrous, um, um, nasty compounds, um, heavy metals and all those sorts of things. And the client said, we don't care. We won't own it. Wow. Right. I mean, and, and for me, that's it, right? So there has to be a better way. Um, then I went on my... I left that job, embarked on a PhD to see how designers and engineers um, and architects could create greener products and mm -hmm. specifically buildings, which is my first love. Uh, and again, I'm back in the building sector. But how that design could be done in a greener way. So I won't go into the details of my PhD. You can read it if you really want to. But um, <laughs> what I realised through that PhD is that actually it's not about the designer like, okay, the designer has to have a whole lot of knowledge and the architectural profession um, is slowly building that knowledge mm -hmm. um, as our engineers, but it's really about the client. Yeah. If the client wants it, it'll happen. Yeah. Because they pay the bills, they make the key decisions, like on how big this attenuation mm. problem would be. Um, so, so that was a real awakening for me through the PhD, then went out and, and basically joined a management consulting firm to learn business. Because after, what, seven years of education, I'd be unemployable if I did an MBA after that. So really wanted to get out there into the world, learn about business, uh, and subsequently did other things. Right, okay. And so then what, uh, fast forward a little bit, that's a fa fabulous kind of founding story of, of you, yourself. What's the kind of the founding story of Ripe Office? Yeah, really interesting question. So, so we recognise, so what... Fast forward through the businesses of the solar and all that that I ran, back into management consulting, um, realised that sustainability and low carbon is a big opportunity, um, financially as well as to save the world, um, and recognised there's a couple of ways to do that. So we started up a consulting business with uh, some of the ex-Booz guys uh, from Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, where I had been working, um, built that, consulted with a whole bunch of uh, big corporates. But we realised big corporates 
for a, a bunch of very good reasons, don't move very quickly, mm. adopting radical new business models, mm. partly because they've grown up very successfully not doing that. So mm. their, their uh, incentive for change is pretty limited. Um, and we realise that actually some opportunities are out there for startups mm. and the barriers to entry are low enough, um, or they were back when we started, um, circular economy really big. We look through then all the industry sectors in the UK, found furniture, that corresponds with my love of buildings and green. Um, it made sense then to start up a small business. We, we, uh, and if, in fact, our test was um, the RBS Innovation Gateway. Mm. We said to ourselves, let's apply for this. They encourage really early startups to put some ideas in there. Uh, we won a very small innovation grant out of that, but were encouraged by the judges from that, who were some mm. of the leading sort of clean tech uh, founders and uh, uh, investors mm. encouraged uh, as a business to get into that. We, we've subsequently done projects with RBS um, and we realised that we had something hot on our hands when everyone was saying, hey, look, we're an expert in clean tech mm. and we think what you've got is brilliant. Get on with it. So we have done that and since, we've, since then we've built and we've been growing very quickly. I mean, and, and that's the, the, one of the things that I'm really interested in is about the, one of the, the problems. Have you got some stats about, so obviously you're giving a solution yeah. and that's, that's sort of the client, the most important thing. Yeah. Um, but for society and maybe some of the listeners, one of the things that's very interesting and quite shocking, for, I think, I remember when you were telling me, is about how much office furniture is wasted every year. Right, exactly. So the statistic and the latest statistic is uh, 2012, so it's not particularly um, uh, recent. But the Waste Reduction Action Programme, RAP, which is the government's body uh, looking after uh, waste reduction, um, they did a study in 2012 that calculated that every single working day in the UK, 300 tonnes of office furniture is going to landfill and roughly another 200 tonnes is going to recycling. That is being smashed down back to sort of metal recycling, fabric recycling, those sorts of things. So that's 500 tonnes a day going to waste. Wow. I mean, that's just massive. And there's one chair that we actually uh, remanufacture quite a lot of. Mm -hmm. um, there's 500,000 of, of them out there. If they have an average life of 10 years, which is quite long for a chair really, but these are very good ones, um, that means every year 50,000 of those are either recyclable or landfilled. Mm. 50,000 chairs. So that's, that's what we see that as a great opportunity, mm. right? If we can track down at least half of those, that's our business growth. Um, we, right now we're selling a couple of thousand of those a year. Uh, we can imagine ourselves growing to take a large share of that, that 50,000 um, and, and remanufacturing those and creating absolutely superb furniture yeah, yeah. Um, at less than half price. So tell me a bit more about the, the furniture. Create a, a picture in the mind of the, of the listeners. Is, is this like shabby chic or is it... No, no, no. It's, so basically remanufacturing is an engineering process. So it's not just spit and polish. It's actually taking up the long life elements out of a piece of furniture. So you can imagine a chair has a steel or aluminium base. That will last in an indoor environment for centuries, if not thousands of years, as you can imagine. Um, what we do is take a piece apart, take those long life elements, check mm -hmm. them, Mm -hmm. and then resurface them, whether it's powder coating, spraying, or polishing. Um, or We don't re-chrome. There is a non-chrome alternative because that's um, very bad for the environment. Recoat them and then rebuild the piece around them. Mm. So reusing what we can, but also replacing the soft elements that fail, like foam, um, like fabric. Um, and so for the fabric, for instance, we use Chimera's 100% recycled polyester fabric. Right. Very hard-wearing. In fact, you can't get more hard-wearing than Chimera's... Um, uh, recycle polyester, um, it, a fantastic range of colours, and in fact, it's on most chairs when they when they made new anyway. Mm. Um, so, so that's remanufacturing. It's an engineering process. There's all sorts of quality checks through that. 
Um, at the end, what you get for our grade A plus uh, product is something as good as new, with a warranty as good as new, with all of the major failure modes understood and managed. So for instance, in, in uh, desk chairs, the gas lift goes. So for our grade A plus remanufactured, we would have replaced that gas lift with new. So you've got something that's as equivalent, equivalent or as good as, looks as good as new, feels as good as new, and for, for instance, most staff don't understand or they have no clue that what they're sitting on is a remanufactured chair. Right. Which of course is our aim, right? Because we want good quality furniture that's got good ergonomics mm. at a lower cost than having to buy new. And so that's something, so it, do, do people buy because of that, that it's more sustainable or what, what are the reasons that you've found over time as to why uh, people have been buying your uh, products? A, a massive range. I mean, some people come to us saying, look, we just can't stomach the enormous bill that the architects put in front of us right. to have this new office. There must be a better way. Yeah. We found you guys, and what you do is so incredibly logical. Yeah. Let's come and have a look at your showroom. So they come to our showroom and have a look at the furniture. They go, wow, I can't tell the difference. Where do I sign? Mm. And then it's simply a matter of making sure we meet all their needs, pulling together the whole fit out, sometimes with the design. So we offer a free design service as mm. well. Um, that then actually becomes an order, and then off we go. Other people are coming from the complete opposite. So we do a lot of work in Wales where the Welfare of Future Generations Act from 2015 demands everything the government does thinks a lot more about the local community. Mm. And because we take a much more community-focused approach, um, where we have a large enough project, for instance, uh, for the installation and some of the remanufacturing work, we use long-term unemployed people with disabilities, which mm. is part of their pathway into the workforce. Um, and we're delighted that we've, we've done thousands of hours of, of proper minimum, well, living wage, it's called nowadays, proper living wage, mm. um, and training as they go to give them a really good opportunity to get into the workforce. And it turns out remanufacturing is perfect for that. It's one of those things where there's a lot of repetition, but at the end of the day, every single piece of furniture has its own challenges. Mm. So there's, there's real problem solving involved in that mm. within a reasonably repetitive, or let's call it a reliable framework mm. of, of daily routine. So, uh, and that's just luck, but, but we love that part of it. So, mm. that, so you, almost there's a triangle you could build that says it's cost saving, social sustainability, and environmental sustainability, and every client is somewhere in that triangle, depending mm -hmm. on the, the weighting they place on those, yeah. um, which is great. I mean, it's a win-win-win at the end of the day, um, and we really don't mind what the client's motivations are, um, as long as they're recognising the value potential in what we do. Yeah, 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 totally. So with that then, what? because obviously, when when did you start the business? When did you f kind of first start? Uh... Well, we, we started collecting all of the different techniques and technologies for remanufacturing through 2014, sorted our supply mm -hmm. chain, but we started trading mid-2015, so we've been going just over two and a half years. Right, okay. And so over that time then, what have you learned? What were the things that maybe at the start you thought, well, th this is what's going to sell it, for it to everybody, then actually you've realised that it's more complex than that. Yeah, I, I mean, we've had to continually in, innovate in every aspect, right, from the transport, the remanufacturing, because remanufacturing doesn't exist, right, apart mm. from Caterpillar and their engine plant in Shrewsbury. Fantastic example, but they've been inventing that as they go along mm. as well. So it's, it's been fun to invent it. But, I mean, a really simple example of some of the innovation that we've had, we, we've had to do is when we started talking to clients, they didn't know what we meant by quality. Mm. There was no scale. So we invented our own scale. So we said, okay, A+, plus, you will not tell the difference from new, even under a microscope. <laughs> right? You'll have the same warranty, etc., etc. Right? So that's the A+. Plus. A, we, we developed a really simple rule of thumb. 
two metres away, in good light, with the naked eye, you won't tell the difference mm. when it's in situ. So it might have a scratch around the back. Mm. Frankly, when it's in situ, if you can't see it, many of our clients say, that's the value point that we want. Mm. And, and frankly, that's our grade A. Most client staff, when they move in, go, where's all the used stuff? This is all brand new, yeah. right? <laughs> you guys are lucky to moving in next week, because um, often we do phase projects, you're gonna get all the, all the crappy stuff. There is no crappy stuff, right? Yeah. And at the end of it, they go, well, did you guys just chicken out and buy all new? <laughs> it's like, well, actually, we're not going to tell you what's new and what's reused because sometimes right, right. we have to get some new pieces in there. So, so that, that, that's example of the innovation. And then we also invented a sort of grade B, uh, which we refer to as sort of 12 months in use equivalent, which is great if you've already got 50 people and then you're kidding out for another 50. Mm. What you don't want is the old staff saying, how come the new guys got all the fancy <laughs> new furniture, right? And of course, grade B has a, a lower price point as well. And we can often match the furniture, exact make and model for what's existing there as well. So that's great for those applications. But most of our clients buy grade A um, and then we give them something closer to grade A plus, right? Mm. We always strive to do that. And so what's been useful about that grading system, simple and obvious as it is, mm. is it didn't exist before, but it means that when we have a conversation with a client, they have an expectation of what they're getting, mm -hmm. and our guys mm. in our team know exactly what we have to deliver. And so literally we'll say at the start of a project, okay, we're figuring out how we get all these bits of furniture uh, remanufactured. The question will go up, what grade are we doing? Yeah. We say it's A. Okay, right, right, right. everyone knows what that means, right? Yeah, so cool. establish a sort of a, a, a lexicon or a taxonomy or a language around remanufacturing. It's brand new, right? And, and we'd encourage everyone who's involved in remanufacturing to think the same way. Come up with a, a grading system, ideally the same as ours or similar to ours, because that then gets the language of users who might not be used to remanufacturing or remaking or whatever the terminology you use, gets them understanding that there are different levels and stops them worrying about, gosh, what sort of quality am I going to get out the back end? Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. And so with uh, what you're doing, have you had any challenges around the cost? Because sometimes cost can be an, an interesting uh, thing that uh, in terms of people under, underpricing you, overpricing you. T tell me a bit about, and also I think because you've had some interesting things around the design process and that you've become more of designers as well and how those two connected. Yeah, I... I mean, what we say, we say to clients, look, you tell us what your budget is and we'll meet that. Mm. Um, and then if they are under further cost pressure, um, we'll find lower spec pieces, items in order to meet that and we'll help them value engineer. So that, no problem, that's part of the service. Um, what's different between us and let's call it new furniture, although we like to refer to that as furniture from virgin resources. Mm. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. That's the only difference between our remanufactured products um, and new. Um, and what that means... Um, is that um, at the end of the day, um, when, we, when we're communicating to people um, about how we, how, we, how we use that language of news, really quite different. Would you excuse mm. me for a second? Yeah. Yeah, can you ask her to step, step aside, yeah, oh, okay. or, or go through the kitchen would be ideal, thank you. Um, so where were we? Uh, so the reuse and talking to clients about the design process. Yeah, okay, and the pricing, that's right. So what we tend to do with, with our clients is, is have a lump sum price because the unit price of new furniture varies, but that's driven by a series of manufacturing processes and importing parts from China and all those sorts of things. So what we have instead is a completely different cost base. So we offer one price for everything mm. because otherwise 
some of what we do will be underpriced, some of what we do will be overpriced, mm. and there's a risk of cherry picking there. And what we've seen clients, sadly, early in our history do was say, oh, I can buy cheaper than that off Amazon or from Ikea or whatever, and then mm. regret that decision because of the lower quality. Mm. I mean, we're, we're talking Herman Miller, Vitra, Orange Box, really top quality furniture. Mm-hmm. And they think if they can get cheaper from Ikea, that's better value for money. Yeah. So we're focusing on value for money, giving a lump sum total that meets the budget, yeah. which in itself is quite innovative for what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. So with all of this, all this learning and all this hard work that you've been putting in, um, what, what signs have you got of, of your growth? What that kind of indicate how that's been happening? Yeah, I mean, the, the major metric that we use is just number of projects done. So mm. we're up to, in two and a half years, I think it was about the two-year point, we hit 50. Mm. Uh, we signed our 60th project uh, yesterday, and we've got a fantastic pipeline of others as well. So, I mean, that for us means a lot. Every project, really rewarding. Uh, we get a great case study at the end of that. Mm. We've had some wonderful testimonials uh, and very happy customers. That for us is that's the, sign, the metric of growth. Yeah. Use, yeah, and what do you see? Because obviously, you know, you're a startup. Uh, hopefully, soon to go to be a scale up. What do you see your kind of trajectory of growth, and how do you think you could uh, disrupt the, the market more generally? Yeah, I, and we we look at sort of horizons. Let's use a McKinsey framework. So, so right now, the, the our remanufacturing business is all about taking really good quality, let's say the top 10% of furniture, the Herman Millers, Vitras, Orange Box, Senators, those sorts of guys, mm-hmm. and remanufacturing them back to new condition. Yeah. The next phase that we see is actually taking the lower quality stuff, which is the bulk of that 300 tonnes going to landfill, and upcycling it so it's as good as mm. those other brands by better quality powder coating, improving the shape of or back support in chairs, those sorts of things, by blowing our own uh, PU cushions, those sorts of stuff. Um, so that's the second phase. The third phase, then, is the really exciting one, is where we design our own products that are super sustainable and remanufacturable. Mm. So we've got a few on the cards right now. Um, we've already developed what we call the opportunity range of soft seating. So we work with the Merthyr Tidfil Institute for the Blind. They have a wonderful woodworking workshop that has been producing frames for top-end sofas for big brands for many years, but we're sort of doing a fair trade, if you like. So fair trade coffee, everyone knew coffee was grown in Nigeria. They didn't know who, um, and and Mm. there was no visibility. And of course, because those coffee growers were a started supply chain, they didn't get a particularly good deal or a particularly big share of the Mm. end product. So what we're doing with the Merthyr Tidville Institute for the Blind is working a lot more closely with them in a partnership, giving them more of the share of the value and because we and publicity for their brand, yeah. um, which of course translates into opportunities for people with disabilities, um, and it also means we're cutting out quite a few middlemen as well, and that means a low product, low cost product, mm. but also a lot more sustainable. So that's an example of that sustainable. Um, a second product that we've just started thinking about is a completely recycled plastic desk. So we take bottle tops and milk bottles and turn those into completely made desks. Now, my structural engineering background, um, we've got a mechanical engineer, ex-Rolls-Royce Aerospace. Um, literally this morning we were start, starting on that project, but wouldn't that be really cool? And the great thing about that is that it's infinitely recyclable. Mm, so we wow, can take that yeah. desk, melt it down, and create another desk, so there's no waste. So that's where we see the, the long-term or the third future for remanufacturing and sustainable office furniture. Interesting. So tell me a bit more about, because remanufacturing obviously isn't just office furniture. And you've, interestingly, uh, my understanding of what you just said is that it, you've chosen kind of office furniture kind of strategically because it was a, a good market to go into, 
to uh, work on these principles, the circular economy principles, the reef manufacturing. But what do you, where do you think remanufacturing generally is going? Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of people that think everything can be re- remanufactured, but obviously there are some products like drugs. Mm. I mean, frankly, I don't want what comes out of the bottom end of a, of a drug process. Um, mm. Actually, I don't want that back at all in right. any shape or form, right? So there are limits. There is a price point below which it's just not possible to move it back to a remanufacturing facility, even if it's quite local. Mm. Um, so I think what will happen over time is there will be categories mm-hmm. that become remanufacturing dominated and it's quite disruptive right so you can imagine if we're charging less than half the list price of furniture sooner or later the major manufacturers are going to say well, we have to change what we do mm. just like the carpet tile industry changed as a result of interface uh, just like um, the fmcg companies like unilever become more sustainable that's not because paul Pullman's a great guy although he's a lovely chap um, Actually, it's because Henkel 20 years ago said every product has to be more sustainable on one of five criteria, otherwise we won't make it anymore. Mm. So actually, a leader in every sector can disrupt that sector. Mm. In fact, that's the only way we've seen corporate change happen. So let's assume furniture eventually um, changes over. You can imagine there are other sectors that would, come, would, would fall in line with that as well. I mean, commercial vans, for instance. Um, it, why wouldn't you remanufacture a commercial vehicle, right? Mm. It's not about looks, it's not about the latest fashion. Um, and, and then you can see that starting to push into fashionable categories, for instance, like sneakers, like um, even cars. Now, right now, it, there's all this sort of, we have to have the latest tech, we have to have the latest trend um, and the latest colours. Well, if you've got a good remanufacturing system, and frankly, a chassis and body that's electric, electric, electrically driven, that you can pop a new top on, mm. that gives you all the shaping and the styling, then there's a lot of opportunity for remanufacturing in at least parts of an electric vehicle, for example. So we're, we're just enormously excited about remanufacturing, but it won't apply to every category. Yeah, and I think that's the, the what's in, uh, game-changing is actually choosing the categories which have the potential to do it comparatively quickly. And obviously, right. that, and I think that's what's very interesting about your, because you brought that kind of consultancy background to this, yeah. you've not, you're passionate about sustainability, but you know, um, whilst I'm sure you've, be, you've been getting passionate about office furniture, you didn't start out as like, like office furniture was your life since you were a teenager. No, no right, and, and we sort of got lucky a little bit because we were able to pick it up quickly. I, I had designed offices for clients back in the day anyway yeah. through my career, so I, office design is something really close to my heart. I mean, I'm, I'm a, a, a big design fan. The immediate adjacency though as we move beyond furniture um, is to bring into an office design all of the other circular components. Mm. So Armstrong and their ceiling tiles, Rico and their photocopiers, um, 360 degree paint and their paints, uh, um, Sangoban and their glasswork. Sooner or later, you're going to have the whole office environment. Mm. I mean, computers, so Dell is doing some recycling and remanufacturing of computers. Yeah. Pretty soon, you can put all that together. So, we're working with our partners, Interface and the Flooring is another good example. So, we're, we're slowly building our partnerships around that to be able to offer a one stop shop, if you like that you say, hey, I really want a circular office because it'll save me money, whatever, whatever, um, sustainability, uh, and what's more, we can finance that, so the cost drops enormously, it's not about upfront cost, it's about monthly cost after that, mm. and of course the value for money, longevity, um, remanufacturability really kick in if you take a life cycle cost, which mm. you can do if you effectively servitize the whole office. That then, and of course there's lots of serviced offices that are trying to do that anyway, so there's an obvious alignment there in the mm. servitization of the contents of a space, as well as the use of that space. 
So that's where we're heading with our adjacencies around remanufacturing and remanufactured products. Yeah, so that and that uh, creating a like office furniture as a service or uh, uh, photocopies as a service. That's a very interesting uh, future, and so. Just, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation and um, certainly I hope that some of the listeners have been feeling a bit inspired by uh, the conversation about how you've been uh, identifying this, this area where you can create a very rapid leverage point and then getting in there and making lots of change. Right. Uh, just as one final point, maybe do you have uh, anybody who historically or presently is inspiring you that you'd like to just uh, as a final sort of yeah, I, I think we as a remanufacturing sector can look to some of those pioneers in the tech sector, as in internet tech, mm. and what they did and how quickly they grew their businesses. Mm. I'm always inspired when I meet some of my former colleagues from Bain um, who were in startups and they're saying, yeah, we're in year two, we've got 180 people and we just raised 10 million. And I think, holy smokes, and, and they're in five countries. Like, how do you do that in a year, right? Yeah. And yet that's the scale that they think at. And I yeah. think it's very easy to get in sort of incremental thinking to say, yeah, okay, yeah. this year will, uh, next year will grow by 10% and then yeah, 10% yeah. after that. We've set ourselves massive hundreds of percentage growth targets and we're on target for our revenue uh, growth um, again this year as we have in previous years. Um, but that enormous level of ambition that the, that the tech guys have, which is seemingly boundless, mm. just tapping into that, even listening to those conversations, you think, wow, I, I should be doing hard, going at this harder to make this bigger sooner. So th that's where I get a lot of my energy from and enthusiasm. No, that's, that's, that's a great example, and that, um, that's something I personally get inspiration from as well, in that sense. So I think a great point to uh, start to close this. Uh, so... Um, if you want to uh, find out, Greg, where can we find you online? Uh, online, www.ripeoffice.com, spelled Roger Yankee Papa Echo Office.com, um, and our Twitter handle is at RipeOffice. Right, great stuff. And also, one of the things that I would uh, recommend you go to their website because at the top of the website is a really beautiful video which gives you uh, a kind of real experience of what actually Ripe Office does. Uh, you, can, you can get to see uh, Greg um, through that, but also one of the things that I remember watching was there's a chap called James that's in it. And uh, he's one of these people that was unemployed, he was having some big problems in his life, and literally brings hairs on the back of my neck just even thinking about what that guy shared. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. So three minutes, it's well worth your investment if you've been inspired by this conversation to uh, go and check that, that video out. And uh, so if you've been inspired by this conversation, I'd love it if you could join me again in the future. Um, either subscribe on your favorite podcast app to Inspiring Sustainability. Uh, go through to the uh, website um, where there'll be a, a newsletter sign-up form on there. Um, I post out uh, regularly about once a month a newsletter. And then also there's my uh, platforms as well. You can uh, join me on Twitter, Adam Woodhall, all one word, and the same on LinkedIn where I uh, chat to the world on that. And so just wanted to say thank you, Greg, uh, for both uh, making your time um, and being so lucid in what you were saying there and also just, you know, getting out there and doing it because it just is, that's what I'm really, this is what this series is all about, about getting, uh, talking to people that are getting out there and doing it. So I just want to shake your hand Thanks and um, wish 
Uh, you the best and the li uh, listeners and viewers the best. This is Adam Woodall from Inspiring Sustainability signing off. Thank you. <laughs>